talk radio, music, and podcasts from the Korean Peninsula. KoreaFM.net. The Seoul Book and Culture Club held a public discussion on the two-year anniversary of the sinking of the Sewol Ferry that gave attendees a chance not only to learn details about the accident and what has occurred since, but to also ask questions and voice opinions of their own. Our special guest today is uh, Stephen Borowick, uh, and Stephen is, covers Korea for the Los Angeles Times. He's written extensively uh, about the disaster, and he's currently working on a book of case studies related to trauma and recovery in contemporary South Korea. So we couldn't have a better speaker to talk about this topic today. So ladies and gentlemen, please give a very warm welcome to today's special guest, Stephen Borowick. One thing I want to just get out of the way is this talk is not taking place where these talks normally do. They normally take place at Seoul Global Center, but that venue said that this topic was too political, which I think kind of, uh, you know, as journalists, you pick out certain details and you use them to tell the story. I think that detail kind of tells us something about the Sewol, that it's not something people are still comfortable talking about, even two years later. I'm not up here advocating for anything. Like, I'm not an anti-government critic, but I'm also not here to defend the government. Like, I don't have a political agenda. I think it's sad that this issue has been as politicized as it has been. It's now something that's associated with a, a certain political identity. I don't think we know enough about what actually happened to say how well they did, or maybe more people could have been rescued. I'm not really sure. But I will talk about the facts as best as I understand them. So on that day, I was fortunate to do an interview with a professor of maritime science. I guess that this guy had never been so in demand. And his theory as to why the boat went down I thought was pretty convincing. Uh, the ferry was running late. It, it had left, I think it had left Inchon late because it had taken longer to get packed up before it could make the long trip down from Inchon to Jeju Island. And it was out of its normal routes. It was much closer to inland than it's supposed to be. And so it was traveling through an area with a lot of very small islands where there are a lot of fishermen that operate at that time of day, early in the morning. And he explained to me that if you come up to another ship, you're only supposed to turn one way. It's like an international regulation so that the two ships don't turn into each other. And so this professor told me that the way that the say, well, capsized, it had turned in a way that would indicate it was trying to avoid something. So his theory was what probably happened was this ship was trying to save time. It was going through a high-trafficked area, probably with poor visibility, and it had come upon a fishing boat and it had swerved to avoid the fishing boat. And because this ship was uh, overloaded and it had been refurbished a few years earlier, it was top heavy and it fell over. But of course, there's another broad context to that that I will get into. LA Times journalist Stephen Borowick went on to describe not only the accident itself, but the economic culture surrounding the ship that also contributed to the sinking. I think it's interesting to consider the, the economics of the Sewol. To anyone who's not Korean, it's really hard to explain the significance of the distinction between Jungyujik and Bijungyujik. So these are the, roughly these are the two classes of employment in Korea. And if you are a Jungyujik worker, your job is very, very stable. It's, it's very hard to get fired. If you are a Bijungyujik, which means a regular worker, you're probably paid maybe half or 60% as much as a regular worker gets. You have no job security, you have no paid vacation, you don't really have anything. Almost everybody that was working on the Sewol Ferry was, a, was on very short-term contracts. I think the captain was on a one-year contract. And so I'm not trying to excuse their behavior, but I think it's worth considering that if the company that owned this boat, if Chung Jin Marine had 
hired staff on a permanent basis and they had paid them decent salaries and they had given them benefits, maybe the staff would have felt more invested in the ship and they would have felt more likely to want to save it and they would have carried out things in a more responsible way. I think part of what happened here is that these people probably all didn't know each other all that well, the, the, the crew, I mean. And when the ship started sinking, I think they probably felt like just, just not very invested in it. I mean, the company that ran, Chung Age Image Marine was really just kind of greedy. Like, they, they had carried out this dangerous refurbishment of the boat about a year before where they had added a whole bunch of uh, passenger space and some more cargo space so that they could carry more and they could be more profitable. Also, on, we, we think, it's, again, it's not, still not entirely determined, a lot of the cargo that they were carrying wasn't properly fastened. So when the person who was steering took that sudden turn, what probably happened is a lot of the cargo that was in the lower parts of the ship shifted and fell over, and that, had part of, that was part of the reason why the, the boat fell on its side like it did. In my opinion, there's a real kind of neoliberal economics tinge to this sinking that this was a company that was trying to earn as much profits as it could, and it was shirking safety responsibilities in doing so. The actions of the crew and the owners of the Sewol came up often during the discussion, including the decision to not bring passengers to the top of the ship. I want to thank you first very much. Um, my question is kind of on the same line. Do we know who told the children to stay in their cabins? Do we know that was it the captain, was it the crew? Yeah, it was a, a member of the crew. He talked a about member of the crew, yeah. so not the captain specifically. This is what shocks me. My human nature would say, okay, somebody told the kids to stay down there, but my brain and my heart says if they stay down there, they're going to die. We need to contradict that order and get them up. Because it sounds like, okay, the ship was overloaded, it was remodeled improperly, maybe it was doomed to sink, but it, the children were not doomed to have to perish. Somebody should have had the common sense to say, this is a dumb order, we need to get them out of there. That's what I don't understand. Yeah, and there was, I, I share your, your feeling there. there was, there's one story about one young woman who was on the crew who was standing at the edge and was like, doing everything she could to rally some of the young people to get off. And she ended up passing away. I think she was 19. So that's another sad part of this. So obviously the shipping company, the family that owned it, there's a lot of questionable business practices and stuff there. What about the, I had read something briefly, the inspectors of the port and the government agency that was involved with checking and regulations and all that. How far up is the suspected corruption that led to, because the, the tonnage, they were way over weight limit, right? That's one of the areas that really warrants investigation. Like how were they, there are laws in the books that say that you know, there's a maximum weight, things have to be fastened down in a certain way, otherwise they can't leave port, and they left port. So yeah, that's definitely something that needs to be uh, looked into. Can you speak, what happened with the U.S. Navy offering to help? At what time during the crisis did that happen? Weren't their offers to help were rejected? Like they were like, no, we got this? I don't know the exact details of it, but yeah, the U.S. Navy apparently offered to help in the, I mean, is anybody, have you seen that movie Diving Bell? That film is about this guy who had a diving bell, which is a piece of equipment that can allow divers to go down like directly to a location and they can work for a while and then they can go into this, it's like sort of a pod and they can rest and they can eat and they can breathe and it allows them to work a lot longer. And if you remember in the, the early stages after the sinking, 
the government repeatedly attributed their inability to rescue anybody to high currents and poor visibility. And so the, the diving bell would have helped address those two things, but the movie alleges that the South Korean Coast Guard just totally stonewalled this guy and made it impossible for him to attach his barge to theirs and, and to help, the, help them out. Stephen Borowick also gave his opinions on a trend he's seen that may make preventing future tragedies in South Korea more difficult. Former Korean President Park Chung-hee, he, there's this one really striking quote from him where he describes Korean history as something that is not worth remembering, that is shameful. And he felt like Korean history was full of uh, superstitious beliefs and, and things that they should be ashamed of. And they should leave that behind, they should pave over it, and they should try to create something new. But every time you do that, you kind of, I think part of the reason that things like the Sewol keep happening is that there isn't a strong enough recognition of past mistakes. When there's a mistake that's made, I think people are sometimes too, too quickly want to move on from it and not remember it. So hopefully the, the Sewol can remain in people's memories for a little bit longer. And after the conclusion of the Sewol Book and Culture Club's public discussion on the two-year anniversary of the Sewol tragedy, I spoke with LA Times journalist Stephen Borowick and asked him why he participated in the event. Part of being a journalist is participating in a kind of public discourse. Uh, and I guess I just wanted to be part of a, a public discussion of a case that I thought was really interesting, really like something that I think this is the kind of case that you don't need to be necessarily be a Korea person to want to take an interest in this. And I guess I just I wanted to come out publicly and uh, share some of the reporting I've done and also hear from people. You know, a lot of people had really interesting questions and, you know, brought some perspectives that I hadn't heard before. So just, uh, just being out in public and discussing this is always worthwhile, I think. For KoreaFM.net, I'm Chance Dorland.